we'd like to remind you that if you are experiencing symptoms of a heart attack, stroke, or any life-threatening medical emergency, please call 911. Please do not delay seeking treatment during the COVID-19 epidemic. Most Providence emergency rooms are open, and CDC-required safety measures are being taken to protect patients and hospital staff. If you are unsure of your symptoms, please use our telehealth services and speak with a healthcare professional that can better assess your symptoms and provide direction on the best course of action. Please do not let the worry of COVID-19 cause delay in seeking out treatment if you are experiencing a heart attack or stroke. Every minute treatment is delayed can be fatal. Thank you. Before we start, I want our listeners to know that the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. Always consult a healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. Thank you for tuning into the future of health on Dash Radio during this coronavirus pandemic. We're lucky to have many experts around our COVID-19 topic and many guest hosts. Remember to visit coronavirus.providence.org for more information. We're here today. I'm Rod Hockman, Dr. Rod Hockman, the Chief Executive Officer for uh, Providence. And it's my pleasure to have Dr. Lee Hood, who is the Chief Scientific Officer for Providence uh, and is also the former and founder of the Institutes for Systems Biology. Uh, Lee has an incredible past. He's uh, from Johns Hopkins. He was at Caltech and is one of the leaders really in understanding the human genome and has been uh, uh, what I would say a scientist that for decades has always been in the forefront of thinking what's next. So, Lee, it's great to have you here today and uh, honored to have a chance to chat with you about your science and then about um, what's next, particularly in this COVID world we're living in. But maybe to give people a little introduction about yourself and about some of the interests that you've been, some of the projects you've been working on. Uh, okay, uh, I've been in science for almost 60 years now, so I've done a lot of different things. Uh, early in my career, I developed a lot of instrumentation that let us measure humans with a depth uh, and uh, diversity that was un- incapable of doing before. That led up to the Human Genome Project, which kind of deciphered this uh, wiring diagram for life, the, the genome. And of course, that's given us insights into its variability and how they cause optimized wellness or cause disease. After that, the uh, pioneered systems biology starting the Institute in 2000. And this is a global and holistic approach to the uh, complexities of biology. And from that came seamlessly this fascinating idea that healthcare should be predictive, preventive, personalized, and participatory. We call that P4 medicine. And the best way to execute those four imperatives was to do a very deep analysis of individual humans. We called this deep phenotyping led to the concept of scientific wellness, which is positive in nature and allows one to optimize their own uh, well-being. I think this is one of the things that uh, caught Rod Hockman's eye, and he approached me in, I think, 2015 with the proposition I become chief science officer and 
an ISB affiliate with Providence. And I saw this as an absolutely unique opportunity to bring this vision of P4 medicine uh, and, and its execution, this deep phenotyping to healthcare. And after we did that, I've worked on uh, Alzheimer's, I've worked on cancer, uh, I've worked on a variety of different diseases, but what I was most captivated about uh, prior to the onset of COVID was the possibility we could do deep analysis of a million people over five years, Providence patients, and reveal their innermost sequence with secrets with regard to wellness, with regard to uh, diseases if they have them. And my argument is in those five years, we'll learn more as much about wellness and four or five diseases as we have in the last 30 or 40 years. We were thinking of starting this at Providence when COVID hit, and obviously it got put on hold. And it was then that uh, I ISP through through Jim uh, Teeth and uh, Jason Coleman at Swedish uh, Hospital in the Providence system to do this large COVID clinical trial, which I think is going to be absolutely a transformational trial. Absolutely. So, so Lee, just before we jump into that and kind of your take. Uh, you know, you coined the, 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 the term scientific wellness, and I think it appeals to so many people. When I describe the work that you do, that the approach that you've taken to understanding what those attributes are that cause, uh, you know, that, are, you know, obviously are affected by our genome, but also other factors that constitute, uh, you know, the approach of looking at it from a wellness point of view versus just from a disease point of view. And maybe right. a little bit about right. that, because anyone that I've talked to said, really, that's what we should be thinking about. So how do we put the scientific knowledge in the genome to, to look at how we are, 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 you know, can stay well? And, you know, you've kind of all um, encouraged us to say that we can live into our 80s, 90s, and beyond gracefully if we do certain things. So I'd love to just hear a little bit about that, and then let's then dive into what we think where we're going with COVID. So in 2014, we took 108 of our friends and we put them through this genome and phenome analysis. And the phenome was blood analytes, about a thousand of them. It was the microbiome. It was using a Fitbit to measure various parameters of exercise and, and self-wellness and so forth. And we found the analysis of these data led for each individual to a unique list of actionable possibilities lifted from the literature that if acted upon could improve your wellness or let you avoid disease. And over uh, a nine month period, we did three such measurements, and I think almost all the people were so enthusiastic about the improvements in wellness that we uh, started a company called Aerovale. And over a five-year period, that generated 5,000 people with these uh, longitudinal data clouds. 
And not only verify that scientific wellness can really transform one. And the reason we know that, I mean, it's really striking, is because uh, we have a metric now, a measurement now called uh, uh, scientific, uh, uh, well, called the ability to determine your biological age. And that biologic lower than your chronologic age if you're very healthy. And to give you an example of what one measurement we made did, we had one individual come into Arafel with a uh, chronologic age in the lower 50s, a biologic age in the 70s, in one year, he had an operation fixed up his uh, IED and uh, a, 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 a gut disease, and his biological age went from 70 to 50 wow. in that year. It was a wonderful metric. And so we can use that to assess biological ages uh, in the future. And the lower biological age you have, the more likely you are to go into your 90s or even your 100s being mentally capable and physically active. A really exciting concept that comes directly from scientific wellness and practicing for a lifetime. Wow, it's that's such a fantastic point of view. And then now, uh, you know, we enter into an age of a, a pandemic and um, your take on the research there is also unique. I think, uh, you know, I'd love to hear you, you know, tell us a little bit about the studies that you're doing and what your approach is. And then, then I'd like to, you know, obviously hear from you about what, you know, do you think the status is of vaccines and treatment? But before we do that, tell us a little bit about the research and the work that you're, you're looking at. Okay. Well, this is a, a file that really was uh, initiated by Jim Heath and Jason Goldman at Sw Swedish Hospital, as I said. And the idea is that we would like to do this very deep analysis on 200 patients. So we'll do the same genome phenome we did for scientific wellness. We're going to analyze the immune system in detail is actually going to develop a simple saliva assay for COVID virus, which will let us assess the distribution and nature of the virus uh, as time passes in each COVID patient. And we're going to be looking at autopsy material to see the distribution of the virus and so forth. And it is a absolutely unique clinical trial. I know because when I went to Roger Perlmutter, my good friend who is second in command at uh, Merck, he within a half hour agreed to fund the initial aspects of the clinical trial unequivocally, saying that he COVID clinical trials and there was nothing like this. And his feeling was Merck is one of the big vaccine companies and his feeling was this might be a real step up in identifying those patches on the virus called epitopes 
they're protective and hence are the key to being able to generate vaccines. And we have some indirect evidence from the first 40 patients that we've looked at already that this uh, might well be true. We may be able to identify protective epitopes, which would really revolutionize how you could go about creating vaccines. Wow. That, how exciting is that? The other thing, Lee, that I'd like to ask you that this also kind of gives us an indication. What, you know, what's your speculation on why certain individuals seem to have a precipitous course with COVID and others kind of shrug it off or are relatively asymptomatic? Is there anything that you're thinking or speculating about their immune systems that is different or that you could think about? Well, I, I would say that why there are so many different COVID-19 disease trajectories, and there may be eight or nine of them, depending on which organs the virus attacks, and it can attack any one of your major vital organs. Uh, I, I think I think that leads us to the conclusion that in part it could be genetics and the genetics really has two requirements, the genetics of the human and what the, how that might contribute. But the other thing is the genetics of the virus. For example, the first viral genome we sequenced away from uh, most of the rest of the viral genomes. And the question is, do they contribute in a unique way to what happened to that patient? Right. So having the two genomes plus the deep phenotyping puts us in a unique position to sort out genetics. But yeah. the other thing we know, if you are, if you have uh, previous conditions, heart conditions, uh, diabetes, what all, you are extremely highly predisposed then to getting more severe COVID. So that's the second factor. But the third factor is, 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 in a sense, it's population genetics. Why are men more frequently infected than women? Uh, why are the older more yeah. than the younger? And in fact, the very young, it's extremely rare and and why are some races more susceptible than other races and i think these are all things we can sort out because we're looking not only at the genome that is your genetic hardwiring but we're looking at the phenome that is the genome is manifest in your body and these should give us deep insights into being able to predict at the earliest stage which of those eight trajectories you'll go into. And once we know that, we can think about uh, intervention measurements to prevent at least uh, a severe trajectory and so forth. So these data, I think, are just going to revolutionize our understanding of the COVID-19 uh, epidemic. Wow. I, you know, before wow. I, I, you know, before I, I up on... A saliva antigen, a saliva antigen to, um, mm -hmm. to, uh, 
to diagnose uh, individuals that have COVID because, you know, the big problem has been with PCR and all the complications and the time that it takes. What do you think the probabilities of having a readily available antigen test on saliva and that capability? Is that something that I think would, would revolutionize the way we're dealing with this whole crisis? I, I absolutely agree with you, Rod. The test that we're designing is actually a test of whether the virus is present or not. Right. And the reason we want to use saliva is it's easily obtainable as contrasted with nasal swabs, which are a very painful procedure uh, to go through. Moreover, we have collaborators now at the Karolinska in Sweden and in Heidelberg in Germany that have worked on saliva and COVID virus for two to six months now and have developed a new type of assay that is very simple, very rapid, very inexpensive, and it uses very modest equipment. And the exciting thing about this assay is that we can set it up probably for less than uh, $20,000 with two simple little instruments. And ordinary technicians can easily learn to use it. And with that simple instrument, we'll be able to do simply thousands of saliva assays a day and if you automate with robots and things like that, we can even conceivably get to the point of where we can think about doing uh, 50,000 per unit workstation. The cost is probably going to be near $2 a sample rather than 100 plus for, for the classic uh, QPCR, COVID uh, saliva, uh, COVID uh, nasal swabs and so forth. So it means you can think about using this assay to follow the course of virus in individuals and come to understand the biology. We can use it for reentry. We can set up a little station at your, your uh, uh, manufacturing plant and people come by and for $2 you could have an assay. You could be assured that because this the sample analysis this time is 30 to 40 minutes, you could real time say you do or you don't have the virus. So I think this assay, and, and this is going to play a really important role in this assay because we need to get the salivas to be able to test to create the metrics for the assay that will allow us to convince the two companies we've talked to about this assay that are really interested in it once we prove its merits are Amazon on the one hand and LabCorp on the other hand. So, and LabCorp is a big partner already of uh, Providence. So they, they would certainly make a very attractive partner. Because it seems like, Lee, this is a type of thing that needs to have rapid turnaround mass screening and it kind of gives us that you know reliability that we don't have now we're kind of flying blind uh with some of the time that we have what 
What are your thoughts on vaccines, timeline? Which ones do you think have the most promise? And then what are the things that we should be thinking about now in order to have one ready as soon as possible? Well, I'd, I'd say one, enormous resources have been thrown at vaccines. And I would guess there, there are tens of serious trials that are out there. And I think no one knows which are the most likely. I, I'm not an expert in this area, so I don't think my predictions would mean much, but I do have expert friends on the one hand who are utterly convinced that close to the end of the year, we ought to be in a very good position to have a vaccine and other friends who say it's at least going to be a year or so. But again, if the deep immunology that we're doing can really reveal protective epitopes on the virus, we may be able to really speed up that process enormously. And that remains to be seen. We have our fingers crossed. And then also with your background, what do you think are the most promising treatments? You know, we've obviously some have made uh, been made infamous by certain people. But which ones do you think there's been a lot of good data around remdesivir? Do you have any other thoughts on other ways immunologically that we can, for patients that are already sick, that we can treat them? I think the real key in the end for therapists is to be able to put together the means to know at what stage of the disease it's best to give the therapy. Uh, and, and there's a, a, a drug called, sorry, sure. there's a drug sure. called um, uh, tamoxiflu that people found out worked beautifully for the flu if you gave it two days after diagnosis. And what I would argue is these many different antibody therapies that we've generated here are um, the drugs are being given very, very late in the patient's stage. So I don't know that we have fair tests of how effective they're going to be. And that's why a really rapid diagnostic because you can use a diagnostic test you can do simply every day and it doesn't, uh, it's yeah. not painful for the patient. To really make those calls to say, for this antibody drug, it should be five days. And for this, it should be uh, 17 days or whatever it's going to be. But the point is you want to match the drug with the optimal part in the disease progression, optimal stage in the disease progression, that it can act. Yeah. Do you, do you have any thoughts on, you know, the last question that a lot of people are talking about whether you have antibodies or not and how long are they protective and what are the best assays to look for antibodies for folks that may have had COVID? What's, uh, what are you thinking about on that topic, Lee? Well, again, this is not an area that we're working on, but it is an area that I think is very important because a number of studies have demonstrated if you take convalescent serum with high antibodies and give to patients that are in very severe stage of, of uh, 
uh, COVID-19, you can deal with the disease effectively in some cases. There were some papers out of China that showed this very nicely. So that there is a therapeutic effect, I think there is, is no question. I think the way to go about it is to take a number of these patients that have these apparently active antibodies and actually there are new technologies where we can, for example, make 10,000 antibody producing cells from those patients and pluck out the ones that make exactly the right antibody and then streamline the whole process of making just exactly the antibody you need. And there, there is a company in British Columbia that is actually carrying out these kind of tests now. And I'm really excited about that as a possibility for creating uh, the drugs that can be useful to everybody. I will say, however, though, the antibodies that work may well be different for patients that have different genetic types. And yeah. they may work for different races. And again, the deep immunologic studies we're doing are giving us clues as to the nature of these differences and what we need to be careful of. Well, Lee, this is fantastic to have you today, to hear you. I, I could talk to you forever. This is does seem to be at least in the age of science, finally. And uh, uh, what it's done to research and the collaborative nature of research is something I know we're both excited. So so great to have you here, more to come. And thank you for letting us in on the exciting research that you're doing. You know, I'll just say one last thing, Rod. I really hope that COVID brings the validity of science back to the skeptics and the importance of science back to the, skept the skeptics. And at the same time, I hope it shows industry the right way to do clinical trials in the future. And I think Providence is gonna be a leader in the right way to do these clinical trials. What a perfect way to end, Lee. Thank you so much.